Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, all the way through verse 16. If you're new to your Bible, Philippians is in what we call the New Testament, and it's right after a small little book or letter called Ephesians. The title of today's message is To Know Jesus. What does it mean to know Jesus? Some might think about knowing Jesus like fire insurance. If I come to know Jesus, then I'll get my ticket to heaven and I'm insured from the fires of hell. Some might see knowing Jesus as a theological idea or a concept, an idea that we kind of kick around. Maybe some people think about Jesus and knowing Jesus like knowing Abraham Lincoln. He's a historical figure. I know about Jesus, um, but I don't know Jesus. And for some of us, knowing Jesus, um, when we start out knowing Jesus, maybe you'll remember this if you've walked with him for a while, knowing Jesus is the most exciting thing. And then it, over time, it can grow cold. It has a tendency to do that. And maybe you've walked with Jesus for a while and you're in a season where, where it's hard and it's cold. And you look at the young Christian who's on fire for Jesus, maybe with a little bit of envy. Man, I remember when I was excited about Jesus that way. So what does it mean to actually know Jesus? Jesus, you'll remember as he's finishing the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7 of Matthew, he said there's going to be a lot of people who on the last day are going to say, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We did miracles in your name. We cast out demons in your name. And Jesus is going to say to some of those, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. So it's a matter of life and death. Jesus even said, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent, John 17, 3. So what does it mean to, to know Jesus? For Paul, as we'll see today, knowing Jesus had real, real implications for his life. It wasn't just an idea, just it wasn't something that he thought about on Sunday mornings, but it, it changed the entire direction of his life, as it did for all the disciples in the early church and as it does for us today as his disciples, to know Jesus. So Paul, in, in our context here, Paul is kind of switching gears a little bit, and he's going to start warning the Philippians uh, of some false teachers, which were probably Judaizers, which were, Judaizers were a group of Jewish uh, people who said, yeah, Jesus is great, but also make sure that you're circumcised, make sure that you continue to observe the Sabbath on Saturday, and, you know, don't eat pork, and observance of the law, that's how we really maintain righteousness. And so Paul is warning the Philippians of these guys, and he's going to show them that actually knowing Jesus by faith is what it's all about, period, full stop. So let's pray uh, one more time, and then we'll, we'll get into the word together as we think about knowing Jesus this morning. Lord Jesus, there is no greater joy than knowing you. You are the prize. You are the goal. You're the reason we're here this morning. You've redeemed us. You're cleaning us, and you've prepared a home for us. We desire to know you. We want to see you and to sense you. But Lord, if we're being honest, sometimes in the mundane nature of Monday through Friday, 
it gets hard to, to continue to press on in that. And so, Lord, we pray just for a fresh work of your spirit this morning that you would excite us once again for knowing you. What a joy it is. What a privilege it is. What an honor it is. Restore, I pray, the joy of our salvation today. The joy of knowing, just simply knowing you and being known by you. Lord, we believe that your word is authoritative, it's sufficient, it's inerrant, without error. And so we place ourselves under it gladly this morning. We posture ourselves under you as our rabbi, and we pray that you would teach us by your spirit in a way that only you can. Lord, I just, I just take a moment to praise you for me personally, for this place where Jasmine and I have been able to grow, to worship, to fellowship. What a joy it's been. And Lord, as I prepare right now to teach for the last time, I give you glory. Lord, this is your thing. Preaching is your idea. Lord, I'm honored to be able to do it. And we're honored to sit under your word, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. To know Jesus is to truly worship. To truly worship. That's what we're going to see first. Look with me in verse uh, 1 to, we'll start in verse 1 to 2. Paul says, finally, which if you know Paul at all, finally doesn't necessarily mean he's at the end of what he's going to (laughs) say. Very much like a pastor. I got one more thing to say, and it turns into two or three. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. The word rejoice or joy comes up 16 times in this letter, in this short letter. He says, to write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Very pastoral. I want to remind you of something. It's for your benefit. It's for your protection. He says, here's the warning. Verse 2, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. So this is the group, and we'll continue on here in a moment, but this is the group that I think is is probably the Judaizers. He's warning against this group, and he calls them dogs, which uh, there's a couple different Greek words for dogs. This word is like mangy, wild, might bite you on the ankle when you're taking the trash out kind of a dog. These were scary dogs. These were not friendly like Remington, our dog, okay? This is a sketchy dog. He says, watch out for these guys and beware of the evil workers. What they're actually doing is evil. Don't, don't be confused. This is not righteousness. And he says, they're the false circumcision. So it's interesting here that Paul, Paul is not very nice about the way that he addresses these false teachers. And he, he's gonna claim absolute certainty of what true worship means, which in our day is, is, is very arrogant. At least that's what our culture thinks. It's very arrogant to say that we have the only true worship. We're the only ones who are actually worshiping the real God. Yet that's what Paul is claiming. And so serious is the issue of true worship and really getting this right, knowing Jesus, that the Bible reserves some of its harshest language for false teachers. And this makes us a little uncomfortable. But here's some of the ways that Jesus and Paul and the apostles talk about false teachers. Jesus said that they were wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul said similar language in Acts chapter 20. Paul also said that they're teachers of demonic doctrines. Ooh, that's cold. 
Listen to this one. Jude, who's the brother of Jesus, said of false teachers that they are wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Jeez. Peter said they are like unreasoning animals. They are stains and blemishes. And so Paul says of these guys that they're dogs, they're evil workers, they're false circumcision. I want to double click on this idea of the false circumcision. If you have the ESV, it says those who mutilate the flesh. The Jews, by Jesus' day, unfortunately, they misunderstood circumcision. You remember in the Old Testament in your Bible, circumcision was an outward sign of an inward reality, just like baptism. It was an outward sign that inwardly my heart has been cut away from sin and from worldliness to follow God. It was always meant to be an inward reality, this covenant sign of circumcision. Jeremiah 4.4 says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord and remove the foreskins of your heart. But by Jesus' day, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all, many Jews had forgot that this was actually meant to be a sign of a real inward change. Not just this religious checkbox, you know, that you check off to make sure that you have this right. And so Paul's saying these guys are not even the real circumcision. These aren't really even God's people. Their hearts really aren't set apart from the Lord. Jesus touched on this in Matthew 23. There's, uh, I think, seven or eight woes that he says to the scribes and Pharisees. And in one part, he says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful but inside they are full of dead men's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear as righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So Paul's addressing this group. You guys look good on the outside. You're a false circumcision though. The spirit of God hasn't really done a work in your heart. It's all for outward appearances. So then what does make up true worship? If it's not these guys, what is it? And this is, verse three particularly is where I want to hone in. Paul says, for we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory or boast in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He continues, he's going to say basically, look, I'm more Jewish than the rest of them. If anyone has confidence in being Jewish and being a part of the right tribe, it's me. He says, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Remember before Paul came to know Jesus, he was Saul. And he hated Christians and he persecuted Christians. Then he says, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. Look, if anyone on the outside was religious and was blameless, quote unquote, it was me. Just remember about Pharisees, because Paul was a Pharisee. He was like the top dog Pharisee of his day. For him, it was like he had a doctorate in religious studies. Most Pharisees would have memorized the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and they would often even memorize the commentaries on those books. So these guys are like the Navy SEALs of the Jews. And Paul's saying, look, I'm more elite than anybody. If anyone's got confidence in their 
Jewishness. It's me. I'm the one who has confidence. But he says we're actually the true worshipers, those who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. So let's just look at this. And as we're thinking about knowing Jesus, and that means how we actually are true worshipers, we're truly worshiping, he gives several uh, ideas of what that looks like. He says we're the true circumcision. Uh, according to Romans chapter 2, Paul says that he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, hear it, by the spirit, not by the letter, not by the letter of the law. So circumcision, when he says we are the true circumcision, Christians are the true circumcision in which we're the only people in the universe where the Spirit of God himself has gotten into our hearts in such a way to cut away the old man, the flesh, and has made us born again. We're the only people in the world who can say that, honestly. And Paul's saying that's where our confidence is. We've actually been truly circumcised by the Spirit of God. And then he says that we're the ones who worship in the Spirit of God. What what does he mean? We're worshiping in the Spirit of God. We just did it five minutes ago. And we're still doing it. Worship is delighting in God. Worship by the Spirit of God is worshiping and delighting in God himself. Finding him most enjoyable, most adorable, most honorable, most praiseworthy. Inflamed by it, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God. So when you look at Jesus by the Spirit, he allows you to see him in his fullness so that you might worship in his power and his strength. I love in John chapter 7, Jesus stood and cried out on the last day of the feast when they were pouring out water, uh, the priests symbolizing their thirst for the Lord. He says, he who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his inner being will flow rivers of living water. And then he says, but this he spoke of the Spirit. When you come to know Jesus, the Spirit of the living God comes into your soul and pours out like rivers, and that river is floating you towards worship of the triune God. This is pretty exciting. I'm pretty into this. This is great. So this is what the Spirit of God is doing. Even right now, hopefully, in your heart, he's leading you to see God in a more full way and honor him more fully. It's only the Spirit of God that can do this work. I think that's what Paul is getting at. It's not because we muster up some zeal for the law, for righteousness according to the law, but it's only because of the Spirit of God. By the way, do you remember when you didn't have the Spirit of God? Did you care about worshiping God? Oh man, I did not. But when God's Spirit gets into you, when he gets into me, he draws us into this place of worship. We need him for worship. And then this other component of true worship. He says that we have confidence in Christ, not in the flesh. My translation says glory. So we glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And that word glory uh, is different than doxa, which uh, means uh, like the brilliance and brightness of glory, but it actually means to boast. So our confidence is in Christ Jesus and not in the flesh, which is why he lists all these other confidences he had in the flesh. Look, I was a Benjamite, I was a Hebrew, I was circumcised on the right day, you know, I was a persecutor of the church, but all of our confidence is in Christ. That's where our confidence is. It's not in our ability to perform, it's not in our ability to be really good or anything like that, it's actually in Jesus alone. 
And that's what true worship looks like. When we come into the presence of God this morning together as his people, or you get up tomorrow morning and you're reading your Bible, the heart posture is, Jesus, my confidence is in you. I I can't do this on my own. My strength is not my own. You are the one who must do this whole thing uh, on my behalf. And for us today, maybe our confidence doesn't look like Paul's, what his used to be as far as being Jewish, but maybe confidence in the flesh might look like, you know, hey, I said a prayer when I was five to trust in Jesus. And rather than an ongoing discipleship and apprenticeship to Jesus, I'm looking back on this past decision, even though my life doesn't look anything like Jesus's or that I'm following him, I'm trusting in this past decision. That might be confidence in the flesh. It might not be, but it, it could be. Maybe it's, you know, I went to Awana when I was a kid and I memorized 50,000 verses. Maybe there's confidence in the flesh there that my righteousness, my right standing before God Almighty is because I went to this club and I I memorized scripture. Maybe you have a friend who's a pastor, an uncle who's a pastor. Uh, Maybe you go to church on Easter and Christmas and so there's an association there. I've been to church so therefore I can be right before God. God surely will accept me. Maybe for other religions, Mormon missionaries who, who go on their Mormon missionaries to go earn their acceptance with God, or Jehovah's Witnesses. Maybe you have had a door knock from a Jehovah's Witness before. They're, they're earning their acceptance before God. The Muslims, Islam, um, there are five pillars of Mecca and the, the pilgrimage to Mecca and fasting and alms and prayer, all that they do. It's earning God's acceptance. So before we move on, just to ask this question, according to Paul's list, Confidence in Christ, worshiping in the Spirit, truly circumcised, the Spirit of God's done this deep work in your heart. Are you, are we, worshipful people? When you come here, when we come here on a Sunday morning, are you ready to engage in worship? Maybe even as you're heading up the stairs or when you're driving in, you're you're praying, God, please meet me here. Please, Please meet us here. And when you sit down, you're... You're not fumbling over a thousand different things. You're ready to be still and to hear God's voice and to discern what he wants to do in your life today. Or in the home, moms and dads, is family worship a part of your family? Some kind of family worship, some kind of devotion where you're reading the Bible with your kids, when you're, you're teaching them to follow Jesus and, and to worship him. Is that happening in some form or fashion? Or as we go about our day, When you're working and when you're taking care of the kids, when you're changing the 100th diaper that day, is there a general sense that I love God? I'm glad to be his kid. There's delight there. There's an ongoing conversation. We pray without ceasing as we think about him and we're talking to him. We're putting our hopes in him. We're dreaming about him and what he would have for us. Are you a worshipful person? I think maybe just a simple application here is to pray that God's spirit would help you worship. You know, just, I think that's a prayer that God is going to answer. When you say, God, help me to worship in the power and presence of your spirit, I don't think he's crossing his arms and saying, you know what, that's not going to happen today. He wants to empower your worship so that he might get more glory out of your life and out of our life. And so maybe it's just a simple prayer. Spirit of God, empower my worship. 
gosh, I want to be so excited about it. I want to see you for who you really are. And God will, will do that. For us corporately as a church, man, I love worshiping on Sunday mornings with you. It is a vibrant, sweet time to worship the Lord here. But we continue to pray that God's Spirit would meet us. We never uh, forget that it's only God's Spirit that can make this whole thing happen. Our brother Ryan is really good at always pointing out, God, without your Spirit, we're just a group of people that are meeting together. And so we need that God's Spirit to come and empower our worship of Him this morning, even today. So to know Jesus is to truly worship. All of our confidence is in Christ and uh, in Christ alone. Next, Paul's going to say that to know Jesus is to gain. Three things that I see Paul mentioning here, three gains that Paul is going to highlight. Look with me in verse 7 and, and uh, as in verse 8. Is, is he says, to know Jesus is to gain Jesus. To know Jesus is to gain Jesus himself. He says, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Hey, all my status is a, from the tribe of Benjamin, as a Hebrew of Hebrews, is circumcised on the right day. He said, all that is loss for the sake of Christ. And he adds to it. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Here's kind of the hub of our our sermon today and of our text. This is why we titled it To Know Jesus. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. So for Paul, all of the things that gave him confidence in the flesh that he went to church on the right day, that he was a part of the right group, that he was circumcised the right day. He says all of that is loss compared to just knowing Jesus and being known by him. And he says, it's such strong language. He actually says, like knowing Jesus is better than anything else. It's such gain that I count all of that as rubbish. Your translation might even say uh, garbage. And in the Greek, this word can actually be translated as Dung. Probably some of you know that. This, this might even mean waste. So for Paul, all the status, all the achievement was like, this is what I was thinking about this this morning. It's like when you get a diaper bin full of diaper ba- baby diapers. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> diaper bin. Yeah, Jasmine's really good at this by now. You take it out and you put it in the trash can and when it's August, and it's cooking, by the end of the week, and you're taking that thing out to the street, it's like a death trap, right? <laughs> you got to be careful. This is what Paul is saying. All this stuff, all the achievement is like dung. It's like the worst garbage. I'm not impressed by it, nor is Jesus. So he says to know Jesus is actually to gain Jesus himself, and it's, it's superior gain. And in a general sense, maybe our story is different than Paul's, but in all of our stories, for you who know Jesus, you might say, whatever things were gained to me, whatever I used to see as gain, those things I count as rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Isn't that the truth? Even this morning, if you're wrestling with sin and flesh and all this stuff, there's still deep down there, 
Yeah, it's all garbage compared to knowing Jesus. It's the truth. I want to know Jesus and everything else is trash. For me personally, before I came to know Jesus, gain for me, this is for me personally, was popularity. I wanted to be liked by people. I wanted to be cool in people's eyes. And it was staying high. Whatever I had to do to stay high. That was like, as I thought back, like what pre-BC, before Christ for Cody, that was what it was all about. And it was gain. That's what I was after. I paid money to do that. I made sure that that was going to happen in my life. But now, with Paul and with you, I can say, hey, that was all, that was all loss. That was all garbage for the sake of knowing Jesus. For some of us, it was financial certainty. That was your gain. That was your ultimate priority. For some of us, it was career pursuits. Others, maybe it was the dream guy or the dream girl. The next book to get lost in. I was never that person, but there's some of you in here looking for that next book. Maybe hours of video games. That was your gain. That's what you looked forward to. Maybe it was a friend group to belong to. Man, if I could just be accepted by these guys at school or these, these gals, if I could just fit in here, acceptance, affirmation, that was gain. But like Paul, we can say whatever things were gain to us, it's all garbage. It's all, can I say crap on a Sunday morning? Okay. It's all crap. This is my last time preaching, so what, you know, <laughs> take it or leave it. It's all crap in comparison with knowing Jesus Christ. Secondly, Paul says to know Jesus is to gain righteousness. Look with me in verse 9. On top of just Jesus himself, which is the true treasure, he says verse 9, and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Trust, personal, vibrant trust in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, not works. If you've been around the Bible for any amount of time or Christianity, you know that we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. Not because of our own works, not any kind of obedience to the law. But in, in the mind of the Jews, many Jews thought that they're right standing before God. And that's what righteousness is. It's, it's acceptance before God. It's right standing before him. They thought that that came as a result of their obedience and observance to the Mosaic law. So if I go to synagogue on the right day, and I, you know, I'm circumcised on the right day, a lot of what Paul lists, if I read the Torah and I do all these things, then God will accept me. But that was never the purpose of the law. Remember in Galatians chapter 3, Paul says that the law was meant to be a tutor or training wheels that was meant to lead you to Jesus himself, to show you that you can't do it. Just look at the Ten Commandments. Each of us fail. And that was a huge part of why God gave the law, to show his people, you need a Savior. Thousands of years before Jesus came, you need a Savior. And uh, that's what the law was for. And for us today, we might think about righteousness and the way that we earn acceptance before God and think that we can keep acceptance before God. I think one of the most common ones as I talk to people who don't yet know Jesus is, is we think we can be righteous before God based on my good deeds outweighing my bad deeds. So if I've somehow, if you've somehow been 51% good, that will outweigh my 49% bad. And somehow God will say, you know what? 
I'll, I'll take you in. I will accept you. So when we go to heaven and we stand before his throne, we're going to say, I've been 51% good. That's where a lot of people think their righteousness comes from. Which, by the way, is that sufficient? No. The Bible says that we need to be 100% righteous without sin for this holy, holy, holy God to accept us into his forever family. Uh, another way that we might come by righteousness, not by faith, but by works, is comparative righteousness. This is really popular. Even as Christians, we can identify with this. Comparative righteousness is to say, I'm not as bad as that guy. Compared to that gal, I'm not that bad. So therefore, I'm right before God. And we all do this, don't we? Well, as long as I'm not bad as bad as that guy. But what's the issue with this? The standard is not that guy. The standard is Jesus Christ. The standard is perfect righteousness. So that doesn't work either. Another way that we might find righteousness before God, other than faith in Jesus, is righteousness by association. I go to the right church. I wear the right clothes. I hang out with the right people. My friend is a pastor. I have some kind of affiliation, some kind of an association with righteous people. Paul, hey, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I hung out in the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Pharisee. It's righteous by association. But when we come to know Jesus, when we truly come to know Jesus, we gain the righteousness. This is such good news, you guys. We gain the righteousness of God himself in Christ. One of my favorite Bible verses. A lot of different Bible verses for a lot of different things, but this is kind of at the core of what it means to be a Christian. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he made, the Father made him who knew no sin, it's Jesus, to be sin on our behalf. Jesus became the ugliness and the death and and the vileness of sin itself so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is such good news. If you are a Christian and if you've trusted in Jesus, maybe you haven't heard this in a while, you are as righteous as God is. The way that God views you transactionally, positionally, as we'll sometimes say, is just as righteous as his son. This has been given to you as a free gift. All the righteousness of Jesus in his life is packaged up and imputed to you as a free gift. You didn't earn it. You didn't earn anything to deserve it. But by his grace and mercy, God declares you, you are righteous. Like a judge in a courtroom, he declares us righteous. And it's not by works of the law. It's not by righteousness of association or comparative righteousness, but it's by faith. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified, in other words, made righteous by faith apart from works of the law. And this is good, good news. Now, do we live like we're 100% righteous? We're trying. This is what we're doing here today. This is the whole point. It's a, a Christian word called sanctification. God is cleaning us up and we're learning to live into that 100% righteousness. So he's given you that gift of righteousness as a free gift and now we're learning to live in light of it and say, okay, if this is true, you've accepted me and I'm 100% righteous before you, I'm learning to live in light of that by the power of the Spirit. So we're gaining righteousness in knowing Jesus. Lastly, Paul says to know Jesus is to gain union. Verse 10 and 11, to gain union. I think this is what Paul is getting at when he says in verse 10, 
that I may know him, so as as a result of this righteousness, that I may know him, there's that idea again, and the power of his resurrection. So not just knowing Jesus, but actually experiencing the power of his resurrection life in me and, on the flip side of the coin, in the fellowship or participation of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Now, this sounds a little rough. In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. So when we are joined to Jesus by faith, he actually unites us to him. One of the ways that I think about it, it might be helpful for you, in union with Jesus. We're united to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So everything that's true of Jesus then gets true of us. But we're not God, okay? So that's one part. But every part of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is then given to us so that Paul can say we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Paul could say that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where? In Christ. We're united to him. We're with Christ. He's in us. We're in him. And so it's this idea that I think about, like, picture Jesus as a big rope, like one of those big ones on like the Titanic or something like that. And we're like this tiny little piece of yarn or thread. And we get wound around, or rather he gets wound around us, and then we become part of that rope. So that's, we're united to Jesus forever. And by virtue of that, we're united into the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever. We're invited into the Trinity. And that happens by union with Jesus. And that's what I think Paul is describing. Uh, Really quick, uh, one verse here that I think describes this union really well. Paul said in Galatians 2, verse 20, he said, I have been crucified with Christ. So when I place my faith in Jesus, it's as if I was crucified up on the cross with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. So the life that I'm now living, it's, it's Christ's life infused in me. That's the miracle of Christianity. You're not doing it by yourself. I'm not doing it by myself. This is, uh, um, Pastor Sam preached on this just a couple weeks ago, or just last week. He says in uh, chapter 2, verse 12, that we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is union with Jesus. Now imagine with me for a second as we think about gaining and all that we gain in Christ. Imagine if somehow you have a wealthy, wealthy uh, family member who passes away and you receive an inheritance from them. And I'm talking big time inheritance, like $50 million dollars. Maybe it would take a little bit of time, but at some point, your lifestyle is going to look a little bit different if you got $50 million in the bank. You might start driving a different car. Your wardrobe might get a little polished up. You might buy that house that you've been looking at on Zillow. Your life is going to start looking different. And surely over one year, two years, three years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, People who watched your life are going to think, what happened to Cody? Surely some kind of inheritance was given to him. He gained some kind of an inheritance. His life is different now. There's something different about him. 
And in, in a really similar way, sooner or later, for you and me, it ought to be painfully obvious that we've gained everything in Christ. Where our life looks different, and it might take one year, two years, three years, ten years, but over time, our life ought to exemplify this treasure that we have in Jesus, where people around us think, there's something different about this lady. She's gained something that I want. And so for you, is it obvious that you've gained Christ for those who are watching you? For those at work that would say, there's some kind of gain that they have that I want. Something that they have that is valuable and is surpassing worth some person that they know that has changed everything. Is that obvious? As you think about your life, do people sense that about you? These people are peculiar. If not, if, if no one around you would guess, this person's gained something in Christ. This person has gained something. Could it be that we've lost the value of knowing Jesus? This happens to the best of us, doesn't it? Walking with Jesus can kind of grow cold and tired. Maybe we're not as impressed with Jesus as when we first met him. I remember when I first met Jesus, there were Christians who had been walking with Jesus for a while who, who seemed to almost put in my mind that, hey, this zeal you have, it'll die down. You're going to kind of burn out like the rest of us. You know, it's kind of, have you heard that as a, maybe a newer Christian? Like, it'll die down. What I think those Christians, well-meaning as they might be, I think those Christians are trying to normalize their mediocrity by telling the young Christian, it won't always be like this. Which to that I say, to hell with that idea. Paul said, to know Jesus is everything. This is it. What else is there? Everything is rubbish in comparison with knowing Jesus. And so may our lives be those who, are, simply put, may our lives be those lives which exemplify to the watching world that we've gained everything in Jesus. And maybe just this morning is a reminder for you, that's right, I have gained everything in Jesus. He's so good. And I've been swept off my feet by him in knowing him. If you do not know Jesus and you're hearing about this worth, that, that Jesus is worth everything and his value surpasses any other value that you would have. I just want to commend to you that no vacation to Hawaii, no pie and ice cream, no perfect marriage, no ice cold IPA beer. Okay, you can tell that one has a spot in my heart. Nothing can satisfy like knowing Jesus. He alone is what you're looking for. He's the one who can bring righteousness to you. He's the one that's going to allow you to worship and delight in this one true God. And he'll unite yourself to him forever. And so if you don't know Jesus, trust in him today. That he died for your sins and he rose again for you. That he loves you and he has a real purpose and destiny for your life. If you trust in him, you turn from your sins today and believe in him, he will forgive you and he'll give you brand new life forever. And that today, leaving this place, you'll say with Paul, 
I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. To know Jesus is to gain Jesus. But now that we've gained all these benefits of knowing Jesus, like true worship, gaining all these things in Christ, do we just sit back and enjoy the ride? Hey, I got my ticket to heaven. We're good to go. No, if this has all been done on our behalf, we're to press on. And that's what Paul says in verse 12 through 16. To know Jesus is to press on. There were some people who kind of would-be disciples who wanted to follow Jesus, but were on the fence. And, uh, you know, hey, let me go bury my father. Uh, You know, gosh, let me go take care of this and that. And Jesus says this. I love this. He says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We're we're to press on. You can't start shouldering the load and say, you know what, maybe this isn't really for me. Jesus is saying, no, no, my disciples are those who press on and put the shoulder to the plow and continue to move forward. And that's what Paul's getting at. He's going to describe this already not yet reality of our Christianity. You've probably heard this phrase before. God has already done all of this in your heart and my heart. He's made us 100% righteous before God. He's united us with his son. All the heavenly blessings of Christ are immediately accessible to us. And yet there's this not yet reality. I'm still struggling with sin. You're still struggling with sin. And this resurrection life that Paul longed for was still yet out in front of him. And so we're being called here in these last four verses to, uh, to press on. Read with me in verse 12. Paul says, after explaining these grandiose ideas of knowing Jesus and gaining him, he says, not that I've already obtained it, that is the resurrection from the dead, or have already become perfect. The idea is mature, perfectly mature. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Paul's saying, I have not already obtained perfection. I'm not with Jesus fully yet, but I'm pressing on. This is kind of a tricky verse. I I had a hard time understanding this verse. In one commentary I uh, was reading, John MacArthur was, was helpful in this. He said, in other words, Paul's goal in life was consistent with Christ's goal in saving him, that for which I was laid hold of that's what I'm going to press on into. Knowing Jesus for Paul was much more than a ticket to heaven. Now that I have this reality, I want to press on. I want to keep moving. And just as a side note, there's a doctrine in Christianity called Christian perfectionism or uh, entire sanctification is the idea that we can become completely perfect in our Christian journey. It, It came out of, I think, primarily John Wesley and Wesleyanism and some Pentecostal circles at uh, churches even near us. This is their view of sanctification, that you can become entirely sanctified, free from sin. This verse is a great one. Here's Paul, probably the most sanctified man that's ever walked with Jesus. He says, I have not become perfect. Gosh, it seems like if Paul couldn't do it, Joe Schmo can't do it, you know? So this is a great verse that kind of pushes back on that, says, no, this is an ongoing thing. You and I will continue to sin and struggle against flesh, and all the stuff that comes with that until we die and go to be with the Lord. One more verse, 1 John chapter 1, says that if we say that we're without sin, we make God out to be a liar. So there is ongoing wrestle with sin. 
And I'd like to know the person who's without sin. That'd be great. Like, tell me your secrets. Verse 13 and 14. Here's the heart of what Paul is saying. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, this resurrection life. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward or stretching out, straining forward to what lies ahead, that is resurrection, eternal glory with Christ and his people. He says, verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So this word, when he says, he says, I reach out toward, your translation might say straining. It literally means to be like maxing out your muscles when you're running a race. If I was Sam, I could tell some cool story about a marathon I ran, but I'm not. Every once in a while I'll run, okay, but nothing serious. But you know what I'm talking about. You've ran hard and you're maxing out your muscles or you're exercising, you're maxing out your muscles. Or if you're up at two in the morning with a crying baby, you're maxing out your ability. I see some nods. You're maxing out, you're stretching, you're straining out. And that's what Paul is saying. It's as if we're running this race. He's saying, I'm running this race and I'm stretching out with everything I got. Every stride is 100%. 110% towards what God is calling me to. And it's this upward uh, call of God in Christ Jesus, which I think is going back to verse 11. It's attaining to the resurrection from the dead. That someday you and I will be raised again to new life, totally free from sin, new bodies that last forever and can eat food, according to Luke chapter 24. Jesus ate broiled fish, so I'm just saying. So that's what he's saying. I'm pressing on towards this reality. Two more verses and we'll make some applications and close up. Verse 15, let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. When I was a kid, there were certain things that motivated me. Maybe when you were a kid, hey, if you finish your homework, you're going to be able to watch the movie tonight. Or if you finish that chore, you're going to get candy. When I was a kid, we used to get uh, candy for memory verses. I think it's a good thing. I don't know. But anyways, when I was a kid, one of the things that motivated me, it was a prize that was held out in front of me, was uh, I, I mowed the lawn. That was not the prize. But I mowed the lawn. We had a pretty big lawn, but we also had a swimming pool. So I started mowing the lawn with my swimming trunks. And so as soon as I was done with the lawn, I would kick off my shoes and jump right into the pool. And it was just this kind of subtle motivation that in the back of my head, there was this prize, this upward call to the pool. And so too, when, when Paul is putting this out in front of us, it's this legitimate prize, this thing that he's holding out that he sees out in front of that's like this legitimate driving force, his straining forward was toward this goal of resurrection from the dead. This is actually something that, in Paul, actually in First uh, John, it says that the hope of this glory actually sanctifies us. Was we're looking towards this thing, like this is real. We're going to stand before God, and we're going to go towards this place called heaven, and we're going to be resurrected again. And this actually motivates us to keep moving forward, doesn't it? In your own life, when you think about heaven, you talk about the afterlife and what's going to come, what it's going to be like. It, it moves you forward in the right kind of way. These days, not mowing the lawn and jumping into the pool, but these days, one of the motivations that I have, and I think, Jasmine, you would share, is, hey, once we put the baby down, we'll have a bowl of cereal. 
So we love cereal. We have like 18 boxes lined up in our, our little pantry area. Last night, it was Golden Grahams. I ate almost the whole box within, last, not just one night, but over the last couple nights, and Jasmine was like, hey, what? there's only like a bowl left. And I didn't really have any excuse. Like, sorry. I, Anyways, so that's one of our prizes that we're moving towards. It's like, man, that bowl of cereal, the glass of wine, or whatever it takes to kind of put the kids down and kind of have this prize out in front of you. So we do this. For you personally, what does it look like to press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Like, what in your life are, are you being called to press into, to push into, to lean your shoulder against the plow? When you're changing the 15th diaper of the day, when you're wanting to withdraw from fellowship here at Philippi because it's comfortable at the house and the couch is so nice and I can just stay in my pajamas, I'll just watch from home. When the temptation that comes to your door knocking again and again and again, when getting up early to read the Bible seems impossible, in like this miracle, like walking on water or something. Like it's just not going to happen, Jesus. I would say with Paul, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Where in your life do you sense, here's the area where I would be tempted to sit back and not to move forward in faith, not to move forward in my sanctification and attaining to this resurrection life of Christ. One last question. What causes a church, not just you personally, but us corporately, what causes us as a church to settle for less rather than to press on toward this upward call of God in Christ Jesus? To settle for less than knowing Jesus above all. I thought it'd be appropriate just to take some application right from this book, some things that we've already covered and some things that we haven't, that could cause a church family to settle for less than what God would have for her. Number one is selfishness. Philippians 2.12, 2.2 says, 2.3, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. If we're a selfish people, if we're inward focused, what can we get out of this? That's gonna make a church nosedive. Gotta be selfless, humble. Paul says in chapter two, verse 14, grumbling Man, this can cause a church to be stagnant, to not press on if we're grumbling. I don't like how the stage is set up. Gosh, the children's ministry, there's always so many kids and they're loud and there's Cheerios on the ground. And I stepped on a Lego. I don't know if we have Legos, but those are dangerous. Watch out. Music styles, how the building is configured. It's too loud. It's too quiet. The preaching is too long. It's too short. Grumbling, murmur, murmur, murmur. Can't we murmur with the best of them? I didn't really like what they said to me today. I don't really like the way they did that. Murmur, murmur, murmur. We want to move away from murmuring, grumbling, disputing, put those things away. Something else that might cause us to settle for less than this prize of the upward call of of God in Christ Jesus is minor disputes and disagreements. He says in chapter 2, verse 14, disputing. Do all things without disputing. Chapter 1, uh, verse 1 and 2, 
or chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. Next week, uh, Sam will cover this. But there was some kind of disagreement between these two gals, and Paul's calling them to live in, in harmony. It can be easy among a church fellowship to have little disagreements, little things that don't really matter, but that kind of just fester. Maybe it's secondary theological issues that become primary. This is a secondary thing that, no, this is what I'm, I'm going to latch onto, and I'm going to find someone to disagree with this about. Don't be that person. Slander and gossip about someone in the church, that little stuff can spread. If you hear someone slandering or gossiping, would you just shut it down? Say, hey, let's not talk about that. If that person's not here, let's not, let's not go there. One more, one thing that can cause us to settle rather than press on is failing to rejoice in the Lord together. 16 times in four chapters, Paul says, rejoice or be joyous. And this is our call as Christians, to be joyful. So many Christians are sour. Like you've probably heard someone was baptized in, is it lemon juice or pickle juice? Either one is sour, right? You get what I'm saying. We're we're to be joyful people, even in and through the, the suffering and the turmoil. So to know Jesus is to truly worship. It's to gain and it's to press on truly worship to gain and to press on. Let me just finish this way. Do you know Jesus? Or or this way for many of us, do you know Jesus the way that you want to know Jesus? Let's continue to press on. Let's do the things that he's calling us to do and, and trust him to continue to do that work in us that he will complete all the way until Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen, let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your son. Lord, Jesus changes everything. And Lord, if we're honest, following him is, is very difficult at times. We still got a lot in us that uh, limits our ability to know him and walk with him and press on. So Lord, I pray even today that by your spirit, you would continue to steep in us this truth, these truths, and that you would help us to become more like him, pressing on toward the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We continue to worship you now, Lord, in spirit and truth. We pray that same idea, that you would help us to worship in the spirit of God, and that we would glory and boast in Christ Jesus alone, even now, as you've truly circumcised our hearts. you set us apart for this. So we offer our hearts to you now, Help us to do it in Jesus' name, by the Spirit. Amen.